Welcome to How to Get on a Watchlist, the new podcast series from Encyclopedia Geopolitica. In each episode, we sit down with leading experts to talk about dangerous acts, organizations, and people. We examine historical cases, as well as the risks these subjects currently pose. From assassinations and airliner shootdowns, through to kidnappings and coups, we'll examine each of these threats through the lenses of both the dangerous actors behind them and the agencies around the world seeking to stop them. In the interest of operational security, certain tactical details will be omitted from these discussions. However, the cases and threats which we discuss here are very real. I'm Lewis H. Passant, the founder and editor of Encyclopedia Geopolitica. I'm also a doctoral researcher at the University of Loughborough in the field of intelligence and espionage in the private sector. In my day job, I provide intelligence to corporate executives on complex geopolitical and security issues. My name is Colin Reed. I am a former U.S. intelligence professional now working in the private sector to bring geopolitical insights and risk analysis to business leaders. Scott Stewart is Vice President of Intelligence at Torchstone Global and Stratfor's former Vice President of Tactical Analysis. Prior to this, Scott was a Diplomatic Security Service Special Agent and Protective Intelligence Coordinator for the technology company Dell. He was the lead DSS investigator assigned to the 1993 World Trade Center bombing and the follow-up New York City bomb plot. As part of the U.S. government's hostage locating task force, Scott interviewed a number of high-profile kidnapping victims, such as Terry Waite, And as the U.S. Embassy's Deputy Regional Security Officer in Guatemala, Scott investigated numerous kidnappings of American civilians and the kidnapping of Rigoberta Minchu's daughter. Philip Jett is a retired corporate and tax attorney in the United States who has represented multinational corporations, CEOs, and celebrities from the music, television, and sports industries. He's the author of Death of an Heir, Adolf Cause 3, Murder That Rocked an American Brewing Dynasty, which was named one of the best true crime stories of 2017 by the New York Times. He followed that book with another true crime story titled Taking Mr. Exxon, The Kidnapping of an Oil Giant's President. His newest book, a work of historical nonfiction, is called Stranded in the Sky, the untold story of Pan Am luxury airliners trapped on the day of infamy and will be released in May 2023. So, Philip, your books on executive kidnappings and murders are are really fascinating. Uh, We'll make sure that they get posted in our show notes so our readers can, can grab a copy of those. But Firstly, what made you write them? How did you get into this area of research? Uh, when I retired from practicing law, I, you know, I was not going to play golf. So I needed to find something to do to stimulate my mind. And being a, a new writer, I had to come up with a good topic. So I accidentally found the kidnapping case of Adolf Kors III uh, when I was out there visiting the brewery in Golden, Colorado. And... To my surprise, no one had written a book about that topic. It occurred in 1960, so it was pretty old, and yet no one had written about it. So I jumped on it. I didn't really know what I was doing, but uh, my years practicing law, I did know how to research and investigate and interview and talk to judges and lawyers and that sort of thing. So I got in and um, took me a while to write it. it, took me some time to get the research material And, uh, you know, you're probing the FBI files and records from, you know, at that time, almost 60 years ago. 
and uh, a lot of the things have been destroyed, but I was able to find them. And so once I wrote the book and it, I got a, an agent and a publisher and it was successful, then my agent said, do another one. So I did, and it, it's called Taking Mr. Exxon, which was about the kidnapping of Sidney Riso, who was the president of Exxon Company International. And uh, that was in 1992. So that's how I got started. It wasn't anything uh, magical. It was nothing in my background. Uh, kidnapping drove me there. I was just looking for some good stories. And I like true crime and mysteries and that sort of thing. So that's, that's what took me there. And Scott, what about you? You spent many years in the protective security space, both in the government and sort of in the corporate executive world. How did you get into this field in the first place? Uh, in some ways, I feel like Forrest Gump, where I've just kind of uh, blundered my way into things. You know, I, I was commissioned, initially I was commissioned as a military intelligence officer in, in 1985. I made the transition over to diplomatic security service uh, with the State Department in 88. And then uh, it just so happened that the group at Diplomatic Security, the, the Counterterrorism Investigations Branch, uh, was looking for an agent who had an analytical background. And they said, hey, we have this new guy here at the Washington Field Office, uh, you know, who is uh, former uh, military intelligence. So I got kind of snagged into that um, and was kind of brought into this whole world of investigating terrorist attacks, including kidnappings. So, Philip, um, I suspect you've studied this topic probably about as much as anyone on the planet. So I suppose uh, I'll start with the, the first question to you. How do you go about kidnapping an executive? You know, the cases you've looked at specifically, how, how did they go about doing this? The kidnappings that I researched, uh, Adolf Kors III in 1960 and Sidney Riso in 1992, were two of the kind of the old old style kidnappings and particularly in the United States. Uh, I know there's a lot of things that go on that we're not aware of, but those type of kidnappings aren't that uh, frequent in the United States. Uh, there are other types of kidnappings that occur frequently in the United States, whether they're part of a domestic dispute or these express kidnappings. And then in foreign areas, you know, people are grabbed for ten or $15,000 and turned over no big deal. They got the money that they look for the next one. Mine that I researched and wrote about, these were two top level executives. The people that kidnapped them were looking to get rich. And they viewed it as, you know, almost like a victimless crime. They, they, they didn't consider themselves someone that were going to hurt someone else. They just viewed it as, I'll grab this person, get a lot of money and skip. So what I learned is in both cases, if I'm a kidnapper, part of a team, I need to conduct surveillance and I need to be patient about it and I need to watch their daily lives, uh, their, their patterns, their routines, look for any aberrations in those. And if I'm the executive, I need to be aware that people are doing that and I cannot let my guard down because in both cases, in the Coors and the Sydney Riso, Sidney Riso was kidnapped at the end of his driveway at home. And here's a man who had worked for Exxon for 35 years, and he had been in several countries. And he kept his guard up there, but when he came back home, he let his guard down. And he actually declined some of the security services they had at the time. He could access a driver at any time who was trained in uh, 
know, kidnap avoidance, and that sort of thing, but he declined. And in Kors' case, you know, his father had been, Adolf Kors III, his father, Adolf Jr., had, there had been an attempt on his life uh, kidnapping in 1933. And he told his sons, look, guys, you'll be targets as well. But they thought, yeah, that's old gangster kind of stuff. You know, that's not 1960. And in, in Adolf Kors' case, he was kidnapped five miles from his home. So both of those situations were where people let their guard down and they think there's some type of safety near their home uh, in the United States and that sort of thing. And that's that's the error. And that's where people like Scott come in who help educate them, you know, never let your guard down and take some precautions. So you mentioned a couple of cases there, both sort of financially motivated. Are you aware of any other cases that have happened where, where there's been a different motivation that it hasn't been strictly financial? You know, there are cases that you know, especially in the 1970s, you had a lot of political type kidnappings and especially in, you know, South America and you had the guerrillas uh, that had some type of cause they were trying to um, further and they either needed money or they needed publicity and they needed leverage. So that happens as well. You, There are some political kidnappings still and I'm dealing on a subject uh, with a subject right now that there was a kidnapping and it was more or less to settle a grudge from 30 years before um, someone who held a grudge from something that someone did to him. And uh, he goes after the person's child. So we tend to think, and I find myself, I tend to think that everybody's reasonable, you know, everybody's clear thinking everyone, but you know, um, some people, doesn't take much of a motive to kidnap someone. Uh, if it's not money or political causes or something that makes sense, it could be that, that they're just deranged. And so as an executive, you, you cannot always think that, well, a reasonable person wouldn't do this here, you know, kind of thing. And so that's one thing that an executive always has to keep in mind. Don't think everyone thinks as you do. And I think that's a, a point we'll come back to in a moment because I think that's a really fascinating point. But before we go on to that, Scott, a question for you. Philip talked about, you know, old style kidnappings, but as the technologies evolved, have, have the risks changed as well? Uh, and if so, how? Well, we, we look at the, 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 I believe the risks are really the same. It's just the tools have changed. Um, so, so now today, you know, you know, you think back to 1960 or even 92, in those cases that Philip was talking about, you basically had to mostly perform physical surveillance on your target um, in, in order to kidnap them. Today, a lot of that can be shortcutted uh, by things that you can find online. You know, you can do a lot of research and, and you know, get addresses by finding someone's social media. You can find out where they eat, where they golf, where the kids go to school. Um, you can really identify patterns of life in many cases just based on their Twitter feed or their Facebook or TikTok or whatever else they're using. And, and you know, we've seen several cases uh, where, you know, uh, celebrities have been targeted. Uh, you know, think of the, the Kim Kardashian in Paris. Uh, you know, you put something out there on Instagram and the crooks know where you're at and what you have. Uh, we saw that also with a home invasion in, in L.A., uh, with a, a rapper, uh, who kind of, you know, put some stuff out there. So, so really, you know, it, it doesn't eliminate the need to conduct physical surveillance, but it just really provides the kidnappers, uh, with a lot of information that they can readily 
you know, glean at their, at their fingertips and they don't have to put themselves at risk to get that information. You know, in the old days to, to go out and, and actually conduct surveillance, you have to put yourself in a position where you can be detected. Whereas now using the internet, you can gather a lot of that information and never really have to place yourself at risk of being detected. So that raises a couple of questions for me then, Scott. It seems like with this proliferation of information out there, it would be very easy to sort of conduct one of these kidnappings. How often do these threats actually tend to sort of play out? And then when you're going about investigating them, you know, with, with this proliferation of evidence sort of out there that, that pe- anybody can pick up and use, how do you go about determining as the investigator if it's sort of a, a real, real kidnapping or a hoax kidnapping or an auto kidnapping? Go into that for us if you could. Well, no, I mean, uh, what, one of the things that we do, uh, you know, from a defensive standpoint, uh, it, when we, when we get a client is, is we look at their profiles, both physically and online. So, so one of the first things we do is conduct these assessments. So one of the, on, on the, the technological side, we conduct what we call a public profile assessment where we look at their social media. We look at what's available in the OSINT. We even look at these data aggregators, you know, the, the Ben Verifieds, you know, these, these Scopios, these other companies uh, that, that basically sell information for, you know, to anybody with a few bucks to pay for a profile. Um, so we, we gather all that together and then we look at, at things that can be tightened up. Okay, does your wife's Instagram account have too much information? How about your mom's Facebook? You know, where can we start to, to cut down this information to protect you from it? And, you know, in addition to that, that we're also doing, you know, just the traditional old school assessments. So we'll do a baseline threat assessment, looking at all the threat actors and potential risks to the executive. Uh, we will also do a, a residential security survey, an office security survey. Uh, we will look at their, their travel patterns to see if there's uh, places and, and patterns uh, where they are vulnerable. Uh, you know, to a kidnapping. And then we'll even look at routes that they take, say, from their home to the office to identify choke points and potential ambush or attack sites where they would be vulnerable. So we can identify them just to be more aware of activity and potential surveillance at, at those spots as well. And so, you know, as an investigator, uh, after the fact, of course, that, you know, those are also the, the types of things that you can look at. You know, you can, you can, uh, you know, go back and, and look at the, the victim's profile to see what's happened. Uh, the interesting thing that we've seen, you know, recently is that a lot of the kidnappings that we're seeing are things that are insider threats. Uh, so, you know, we had the, the kidnapping and, and murder of Tushar Atre, the, the tech and, and cannabis entrepreneur in California. And that was actually, he was kidnapped by, uh, you know, some of his own employees who then forced him to open one of the warehouses where the cannabis was, was uh, kept. Uh, so uh, we're, we're really you know, seeing a lot of the insider threats too. So you, you can't just look at the, out, the, the, the kidnapping threat from the outsider context, but you also need to consider insider context. And of course, that's what we saw in the Riso kidnapping as well, as Philip wrote. You, know, you had an insider from Exxon who had a good head start on, on targeting Mr. Riso. So Philip, tell us about that case in particular then. I'm really interested in this idea of the insider being involved in the kidnapping. So who was this insider? What you know, what advantage did being an insider give them in this case? When he did the kidnapping, he was unemployed. But at one time, he had been in charge of Exxon Security within the building in which Sid Riso worked, which is in New Jersey. And before that, he had been a police officer. So from a law enforcement standpoint, as well as what I, the, mo- the thing I found most interesting is about him, even though he 
had been terminated from Exxon. Uh, and that was a little bit of a grudge, but not his primary motivation. He still had contacts within the security world that he would call up and say, hey, and he would just make it up. Hey, you know, I, I'm working on a new job and, and I'd like to know what you guys are doing over there at Exxon, you know, in this regard or that regard. So people unknowingly at Exxon were giving him information about security procedures within the company still, which I found fascinating that even though he had been removed for, I think, six years, he still had contacts who were still working within the company in the security area. And so that gave him a leg up. But, uh, you know, he chose uh, Sid Riso. He had four or five people on his list. And they all lived in the same area, uh, very nice area in Morristown, New Jersey. And you had, so he had Merck and AT&T and all these executives. And the reason he chose Exxon was when he did his surveillance, Sid Riso's house was situated that uh, there were a lot of trees. He was set back from the road, hidden, kind of off the beaten path. So he viewed it simply as this guy is easier to grab than others who are on busy streets and that sort of thing. But he did have the inside connection. And as I say, he maintained that. I don't know if Scott has run across that where you tell your company people, hey, don't be talking to people outside the company. I mean, it seems common sense. But, you know, these people viewed him as an old buddy and like, hey, yeah, I'm glad to help you with what we're doing now. Scott, do you want to weigh in on that? How does that that kind of uh, operational security element play in there? No, uh, it it really is vital. And that's where I I think that we've progressed in recent decades that that people understand more importantly, or or, or they understand the importance of of, uh, protecting that sort of operational information and the threats that, that, you know, can be posed if it's leaked. Um, So, you know, a lot of times you will have very strict uh, non-disclosure agreements and you will really uh, emphasize those points and, and highlight them with your staff so that they understand uh, that, that, you know, that kind of information is, is critical and needs to be protected. So final question uh, from the, the kind of, you know, the dangerous actors side of, of this is, you know, is there an emerging scope for kind of social or climate justice related kidnappings of executives? You know, we've talked a lot about financially motivated kidnappings. Philip mentioned that it's not always the case. We're seeing a lot of aggressive discourse on Twitter and other social media sites around various executives based around inequality, climate change. Are are these kind of threats changing the game? Well, I I think Scott could speak to that more than I, but in the Sid Riso case, the kidnappers posed as environmental terrorists and because it was Exxon and there had been the Exxon Valdez spill three years earlier. So they posed as a group that had an axe to grind environmentally. And the FBI initially took that very seriously because it made some sense. And there had been threats against Exxon from different organizations. And there was some factual background that fit. They chose names that were part of Greenpeace, uh, you know, the Greenpeace ship and that sort of thing. So they, the kidnappers had done their homework to at least throw the investigation toward environmentalists even though they were like a local mom and pop just down the street. Uh, even then, the FBI took those type of threats seriously. 
And today, I'm sure Scott can tell you, uh, I'm not up to date on that sort of thing, but I would think that the FBI and other agencies and corporate security take those kind of threats seriously. Scott, please go ahead if there's anything from the contemporary side there. You know, we we need to understand that kidnapping is really, you know, a tactic um, and and nobody owns that tactic. It can be exercised by anybody. But certainly when we look at some of the rhetoric that has been used in the grievance narrative that's being put out there by by some of these uh, groups such as Extinction Rebellion, um, it, it really is scary, uh, and they really are, you know, starting to, to put the blame at people. At the same time, uh, you know, here in the United States, we had that case recently where we had a group of militia members that was, uh, you know, plotting to kidnap the governor of Michigan. So certainly, it, it is a threat from all sides and all different causes, and uh, it's something that, that, as a security practitioner, I take very, very seriously every day. And so, you know, when we do those baseline assessments on a corporate executive. Those are the things we're looking at, uh, you know, uh, in addition to their ethnicity, uh, you know, it, uh, you know, is this an African-American executive? Uh, is this a Jewish executive? Uh, you know, is there some other uh, threat that could, that could come in there from another angle, uh, you know, sectarian wise? Is the executive a Shia Muslim and worried about Sunni Muslim extremists? So there's a lot of, of ethnic things there you worry about, uh, you know, the single issue, you know, type causes. So I think the the key takeaway from all of this is that that the the breadth of the the threats here is absolutely enormous. So after the break, we'll talk more about how we can protect against these kind of threats, because it certainly sounds like they are a very significant issue. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You have been listening to How to Get on a Watch List, the new podcast series from Encyclopedia Geopolitica. If you like this show, don't forget to check out our other content at Encyclopedia Geopolitica, which you can find by going to howtogetonawatchlist.com, where you can find our analysis on various geopolitical issues, as well as reading lists covering topics like those discussed in the podcast. Please also consider subscribing to the podcast on your streaming platform of choice, as well as rating us five stars if you enjoyed the discussion. So, Scott, in the first half of the show, you've told us quite a bit about how one might investigate a real kidnapping. Uh, But let's talk some more about your experience with auto kidnappings or hoax kidnappings. How did those investigations go and how did they sort of differ from your your real kidnapping investigation? Yeah, uh, probably one of the the most high profile uh, auto kidnapping or self kidnappings that I investigated was the grand niece of Rigoberto Menchu, and she was a Nobel Prize laureate from Guatemala. Um, and, and a lot of people, I guess, may not recognize, but there's a substantial cash prize. Uh, it was a million dollars at that time that comes with the Nobel Prize. And uh, we had some members of uh, Rigoberto Menchu's family, uh, her niece and, and her, her niece's husband, who decided they, they deserved a part of that cash prize. So they actually uh, you know, staged a kidnapping of their own little girl in order to try to get you know, the great aunt to uh, cough up some, some ransom money for her. And really, we cracked that case just by old-fashioned detective work, you know, getting out there, interviewing the victim, 
you know, the alleged victim, uh, you know, the, the mom. And, and that's where we really started. Once we started, uh, you know, talking to her, talking to the husband, of course, we kept them separated. And once we started interviewing them, their uh, account of, of, the, of the kidnapping varied. We had uh, different descriptions of how it happened, of what the, the perp looked like. So there was just a lot of disconnects there where they didn't have their, their story really synced up well. And that kind of allowed us to, to go back and, and uh, say, hey, uh, you know, uh, Ms. Minshew, we, we really believe that this was your niece. And so we were able to coordinate with the Guatemalan authorities uh, who went to the husband's family's house and they found the little girl there alive and well. Um, so, so, you know, it, it's just old fashioned police work a lot of times, you know, to get to the bottom of what happened. But in addition to those, those kind of, uh, you know, auto kidnappings, there are a lot of hoax cat kidnappings going on, uh, you know, what, what we call uh, virtual kidnapping. And that's where, you know, someone will, will pretend that they have someone um, and, and then try to elicit money fr- from the victims. Uh, quite often, this is done by telephone. And in a place like Mexico, uh, there's actually a whole industry of virtual kidnappings that, that is going on from the prisons, where we have people actually in the prisons that are calling up the, the, the families of these victims, pretending they have the victim, and then extorting the money from them. Uh, you know, in those, they, they usually try to, to use a lot of pressure. Uh, you know, they will usually use some, some sort of screaming, you know, pretend they have the victim. But a lot of times they don't have a lot of information of the victim. We've actually seen some some interesting versions of that, though. Uh, there were some gangs that were actually going to malls in Mexico, pretending that they were giving away something like an iPad or, or you know something that was kind of exciting, and they would uh, stand outside a movie theater and uh, kind of you know take information to enter this contest from these young wealthy kids. And then what they would do is wait till the kids went into the movie and then call the parents, you know, because they would have their phones off while they're in the movie. Then they would call the parents. They'd have the description of what the child had. They'd have their all their contact information. You know, they'd know what they were wearing, um, and and so it was a very uh, you know pretty effective scam at, at getting these families to cough up money. Yeah, that's a fascinating case. I I'm wondering how can someone protect themselves or their family or their kids against express kidnappings or uh, express kidnappings or the, these virtual kidnappings? Uh, either both both. I would love to know both. Well, I mean, obviously, the virtual kidnappings, you, you need to just keep your head and, and, and try to slow things down. Don't send any money immediately. Uh, you know, uh, obviously, you need to communicate with your, your children about these sorts of threats and make sure that there is a way to communicate with them. So, you know, if they're going into the club uh, where there's going to be loud music or if they're going into a movie theater where they can't have their phones on, on uh, ring, you can at least have a silent communication there, you know, have it on silence so that you can still communicate with them. Um, and, and just being aware of the tactic actually, you know, is, is, is very helpful. Now, of course, the, those express kidnappings, uh, most frequently we see those late at night on the street. A lot of times it's, it's in connection uh, with uh, an ATM or many times it's in connection with someone who has, uh, you know, basically had too much to drink uh, or has been using drugs. So that's, that's usually something that, that's on the street. So really, you know, not being out at, you know, 2.30 at, at night on the street. Uh, is a good way to to avoid being express kidnapped, um, and, and you know obviously in a lot of environments, not even just in the U.S., but we're seeing a lot of kidnappings, those short term kidnappings like that that involve you know like a date rape drug or some sort of uh, you know something slipped into a drink or even an injection. 
uh, which is crazy enough. But, you know, we're seeing these dance clubs where kids are being injected with drugs. They are, you know, being uh, abducted and raped or robbed or both. Um, so, so really, you know, awareness, though, of these things, you know, being careful where you are and what you're doing can go a long way in protecting you against those kind of kidnappings. So, Philip, a question for you. You know, Scott's given us a lot of examples here that it, it, it seems like it's not just executives themselves who are at risk. So what about families? Have you ever seen cases where a family of an executive has been targeted specifically because of their link to a you know a wealthy dynasty, a wealthy family? There are some famous ones. Um, of course, Frank Sinatra Jr., which is interesting, and, and the one they just made a movie about. Um, help me here. Uh, the, gay, the gay kidnapping out of Italy. The Getty grandson. That's right. That was another famous one. So, but you don't have to be, you know, that wealthy. Uh, you know, it's funny. I spend a lot of time. I'm a snowbird now and I, I go down to South Florida for the winters and I hang around the Palm Beach International Equestrian Center where riders from all over the world compete during the winter. And you have Bill Gates and, and all those kind of people down there whose daughters ride and compete and just the looking around, I, you know, I've spoken with some about their security and that is something that they of course are aware of in any kind of situation like that. You have Bloomberg, Gates, all these type of people down there whose daughters ride horses and compete and, and people walk about freely and, and you don't have to have a, Ticket, usually you can come in and look from afar or, or what have you. So I do know, you know, from a peripheral standpoint, I've not been involved, um, that that is something that is of great concern, particularly in those circles that, you know, I may not be able to grab Bill Gates, but his daughter, after she gets off a horse and goes into the restroom, you know, she's a target and, and they're prepared for that. So, Scott, as a kind of countermeasure to this then, in the first half of the show, you talked a little bit about some of the, the measures you can use to assess the vulnerability of executives and their family members. But what about the actual physical protection? Are there special measures you would have to take to protect the family member of an executive that, that would perhaps differ to the executive themselves? Uh, yeah, that, that's certain, certainly true. Uh, one of the things that I think it's important as we, we look at kidnappings is that we understand that they don't just happen. Uh, you know, they're the result of a process. There is an attack cycle there, and it's a process that can be identified and it can be detected if if you're looking for it. And the problem happens when people don't realize that that it is, a, you know, they're just not looking. And quite frankly, one of the big vulnerable points during a kidnapping is that surveillance time. Basically, a kidnapper has to make themselves vulnerable to detection uh, when they are conducting the surveillance, and traditionally they are very bad at surveillance, but they get away with conducting that surveillance because no one's looking for it. You know, they're they're really ham fisted. To be a good surveillance operative, it takes you know many many hours, you know, hundreds and hundreds of hours on the street learning the techniques because it's conducting surveillance is really a, an unnatural act. Because of this, most hostile surveillance from from especially from criminals or terrorists is very ham fisted. Uh, but they're allowed to get away with it because nobody's looking for it. So, I mean, one of the things that we really work on doing with our clients, you know, even the clients that don't want protection per se, but we can educate them uh, and, and really equip them to spot hostile surveillance. And then obviously, if, if that happens, we can start ramping things up. 
you know, at, at the other side, you know, we, we have the higher end clients who, who do have either an active threat or, a, you know, a, a more legitimate concern and, and we will protect them. Uh, and, and you can either do that with, you know, an actual physical bodyguard detail, or you can do it a little more subtly by kind of putting a protective bubble around them looking for, for surveillance and looking for signs of hostile behavior. So, you know, you don't always need a, a, a guy who's 6'6", 300 pounds walking next to the child to protect them. There's a lot of things that you can do as far as, you know, providing that, that invisible bubble looking for hostile activity. So while we're on that subject, talking about close protection teams, how do those typically fit in in the corporate world? Is that something that's being paid for by the company? Are these company employees or are these more likely to be people that are retained specifically by the, the leadership, by the boss to protect him and his family? Well, that's all going to depend on kind of the company and the situation. Quite frankly, in many cases, it's, it's viewed as a necessity from the board and they're going to kind of demand it. Many times it can be a split. So the, the, the company may pay for the protection of the executive, and then he will pay for extra protection for his children and wife or something like that. One of the things that's important, though, is that those services will be counted as income uh, for the executive uh, unless there is deemed to be a credible threat by an outside advisor. And my company, we actually do a lot of those surveys uh, where we'll go out and just you know do a baseline threat assessment look at all the threat actors and determine whether or not there is a legitimate business-oriented threat against the executive that, that necessitates the current protection. And then we do an assessment of whether or not the current level of protection is adequate or not. Uh, you know, and many times that will involve things like you know, using private aviation, uh, you know, a car and driver, or even up to a protective detail, all depending on, on what the threat there and what's considered appropriate. Okay. So, you know, it sounds like surveillance plays quite an important part in this uh, world of keeping executives and their families safe. So, so talk, talk a little bit about that. How does that work? No, uh, yeah, the, the, the surveillance and detecting surveillance is key. And, uh, you know, that's one of the things that I've really uh, enjoyed so much about Philip's books is that he's one of the few authors that's actually focused on that, you know, the kind of the how-to aspect of the kidnapping. And one of the reasons why I so highly recommend his books to clients and others who want to understand kidnappings and how to protect themselves from kidnappings. We'll make sure links to the book get dropped in the show notes there. But Philip, please tell us a little bit about that then. How does the surveillance element fit in in your, your research? It's funny because both cases, uh, the surveillance section was fascinating to me because they were so different. In 1960, uh, this was kind of a lesson of how not to conduct surveillance. Joe Corbett, who was watching Adolf Coors III, at one point, the Coors family lived in Denver within the city limits on a city street. And so it was easy for him to conduct surveillance. He could park on the street with other cars and blend in and walk around and that sort of thing. But then the Coors family moved far away and bought a ranch uh, south of Denver and very secluded area. So he starts driving around the countryside in a yellow car. Having grown up in a rural area, when you see cars you're not familiar with, you just automatically start to suspect they're up to something. And that was the case in the Coors case. After, Unfortunately, they didn't uh, take too much notice beforehand, but after he was kidnapped, 
everyone said, yeah, you know, there was this guy in this yellow car that kept driving around. In fact, I got like three of the numbers off the license plate because he was hanging around my ranch kind of thing. So that was an example of a poor way to do it. In the Riso case, uh, they were more sophisticated, even though this was just a husband and wife uh, living nearby. The Risos lived in a very nice suburban uh, neighborhood. So uh, the wife uh, of the kidnapping team, she would dress in nice jogging attire, expensive attire, and jog up and down the street in the morning and at night and different times. And the other thing they did was, because this was a new neighborhood, there was some construction of houses going on. So Artsil, who was the husband, he would go over to the construction site at night or early in the morning before the, the, the worker team got there and watch. And they found different ways to watch Sid Riso, but yet no one really noticed because, you know, if, particularly the jogger I thought was ingenious. You know, people jog by my house every day. I don't know where they come from or where they go. And as long as they kind of fit in, you know, I mean, who would know? So in in my two books, I found that fascinating. And of course, as an author, you want to create this ominous sense of, you know, uh, doom that's coming. Uh, and surveillance allows you to do that. It's like, okay, it's it's kind of like the Jaws music, you know, dun, 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 is they're getting closer and closer with the surveillance they're conducting and something is going to happen. And unfortunately, that's the real life situation. But a lot of executives, they don't hear the Jaws music. You know, they they don't know that's happening. So we've talked quite a bit now about the surveillance, counter-surveillance part of this. Um, we're all intelligence nerds at Encyclopedia Geopolitica. So I have to ask, is there a role for intelligence to play here in, in playing defense and sort of identifying the surveillance and helping to prevent these kidnappings sort of before they take place? Uh, if I can answer that, I'd say 100%. Uh, and that's one of the things that we really focus on in protective intelligence is is looking for that hostile surveillance. Um, and, and, you know, we also recommend to our clients and, and teach them ways that they can manipulate surveillance. So by going out around, uh, whether it's a residential area, looking for what we call the perches or, or places where surveillance would have to be. Uh, in order to conduct surveillance, uh, you know, on the target. So we're we're trying to help them identify the perches, figure out ways that you can heat up certain perches by maybe putting CCTV coverage there, or maybe a uniform guard attention or something. And then a lot of times, what we'll do is kind of leave a honey pot perch, uh, a place where we want them to go, where it's it's you know less obvious. So we want to try to drive surveillance to that place where that we can then capture them and identify them and you know, start to figure out you know what's up and who they are. So so there's a lot of things that you can do to really mess with the minds of people conducting surveillance. You know if you're you know cognizant of the threat and have a little bit of understanding about how surveillance works, uh, that that then allows you to understand the constraints that people conducting surveillance are under and how you can take advantage of those constraints to really force them to uh, show their cards. I've got to say, Scott, you know, what you're describing here sounds like a fascinating line of work. So I suppose the obvious question is, how does someone get into the world of executive protection? What what advice would you give any of our listeners who are thinking, hey, this sounds like a really cool job. I'd, I'd like to do it. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, one of the the interesting things, you know, for, for traditionally for for you know many years, it was you know people like me coming out of a, a government background. You know, you'd have a lot of people who were you know former Secret Service, former State Department, you know, a lot of former military guys. You know, sometimes that tradition that that transition could be difficult coming into the corporate world, though. Because, you know, generally working under the, the government label, you have, you know, statutory authorities and, and, you know, certain expectations and rules of engagement. And you have to be a lot more flexible in the corporate world. But, but certainly, we're, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot of transition from people coming out of the military or law enforcement. Uh, you know, they get a little bit of demilitarization, if you will. Um, you know, and, and it really helps them step into the corporate world. We're also kind of seeing the, the emergence of some of these uh, schools. Uh, where people can go to get an education in executive protection. But, but I mean, I've worked with people throughout the years who have just a, a wide array of backgrounds. Um, you know, people who were former EMTs or people who were lawyers, you know, just coming from other backgrounds. So, so not everybody's, uh, you know, a, a former agent or, you know, former Navy SEAL or something. Uh, and, and certainly uh, we're also seeing a lot more diversification gender-wise into the executive protection realm. So we're seeing a lot more women come in, which I think is a good thing, to be honest, for, for EP programs, not only because there's a, you know, a lot of places where women can go that guys can't, you know, especially if you have a female protector or a child, but, but also just for things like uh, in a surveillance detection role. A lot of times, it, you know, women can, can be, uh, I guess, fit in more uh, than a, you know, a fit military looking guy. So, so sometimes they can uh, be a lot less attention grabbing and more effective as, as surveillance detection assets, uh, you know, than a military age guy. Well, that's that's really interesting. I mean, the the stories you've you've both told here, the the kind of insight to the field you've given us is is really fascinating. There's a question we like to to end the show on, which is what what keeps someone like you up at night when you think about these risks, when you think about these dangers. What what is it that worries you about this field? As an author, I sleep pretty well. Because, you know, I've written two kidnapping books. I'm on, I've written another book and I'm on a fourth book. Uh, I'm not a kidnapping expert, though I have gained a lot of knowledge in the area and I've made a lot of friends like Scott and a lot of former FBI agents. Um, in fact, in April, I'll throw this in. I was invited to Morristown, New Jersey. April 29th of this year, which was the 30th anniversary of the Sid Riso kidnapping and the former FBI agents and, and prosecutors, uh, had a kind of reunion party, which was odd, but they invited me up. And, and so I've made a lot of friends in that respect. And I certainly respect those who work. And, and just to touch on something Scott said, you know, there were some female FBI agents involved in the Riso case that were instrumental to uh, solving that case. And um, that was pretty early on when uh, female agents were, were a rare thing. And, um, and two of the most instrumental agents were females in that case. So as Scott said, they, they can go and do things that the, the men can't. And uh, so it's, you know, I, I sleep well, but it's been an education for me. And uh, it does make me, for instance, when I go to South Florida and, and watch these folks uh, with lots of money, it makes me think on their behalf what they're doing and, and or if they're aware, which I know they are. But it's it's been uh, kidnappings are something that keep Scott busy. And, and I'll turn it over to him because he can certainly enlighten you more. 
I, I, th- I think from my perspective, unfortunately, it's many things. <laughs> uh, although I, I do tend to sleep well both nights, but, but there are things that, that really, uh, you know, keep me up and that, 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 that concern me. One is when I have a, a client uh, and, and there's a, an operational security problem, an information leak problem that, that we can't shut down. Uh, the wife will not stop posting on Instagram. Uh, that's just, that's a nightmare. You know, she flat refuses. Uh, and, and, you know, I've had clients where, where that's happened. The insider threat is always terrifying just because they have so much access and, and they have so much opportunity to view the security program in place if there is one. So they understand what you have in place. And that gives them a lot of opportunity to kind of plan and scheme of how to defeat your security program. So the insider threat is, is terrifying. I guess the other one that, that I would say is, is just the, the fear of the unknown. Uh, especially as we kind of get these, you know, new technologies coming into play right now. Thinking about things like, you know, remote cameras now, you know, they have these, you know, cell phone type cameras that you can place on a tree somewhere to help with surveillance. Uh, things like drones uh, that can be used for surveillance. So it, it's becoming more and more difficult to detect surveillance because of some of these technical tools that can be used uh, in, in surveilling uh, your clients uh, for kidnapping. I'll uh, I'll finish with one more question for either of you. What's a question that you wish we had asked you today that we didn't get to? What's something that that maybe you should bring up for us? I, I guess we hit on it a little bit at the beginning, or hinted at it, but but just you know, really the you know, looking at at the the range of, of kidnapping threats and different kinds of kidnappings. I mean, we talked a little bit about the express kidnappings, the virtual kidnappings, but you know, we we've seen uh, kind of this eruption of tiger kidnappings which is something we, we haven't really talked about here, you know, where uh, members of the family are kept at the home. Uh, you know, basically the home is invaded and then they'll, they'll send a, a member of the family, uh, you know, generally it'll be a husband, but in to do something, uh, you know, open the bank vault. You know, we, we've seen those used, you know, very frequently in places like Northern Ireland. Uh, but, but in recent years, we're kind of seeing them emerge more and more in the U.S. where they'll, they'll grab a family and then force, uh, you know, the husband to do something. And, and so, you know, those kind of kidnappings are also something I think people need to be aware of and, and that, that threat of tiger kidnapping as well. You know, that's interesting, Scott. I didn't realize that was going on now because, you know, there's a famous movie, I can't recall the name, with Humphrey Bogart, where they do that exact thing. They go in and they're requiring the, the family members to do certain things and they keep the daughter or the wife uh, hostage while they do that. And that's, that's an old movie. I didn't realize uh, that was still going on today. Well, actually, it also uh, recently appeared in Jack Carr's Terminal List uh, book and in, in the uh, the show that came out where they, they forced the guy to become a, a suicide bomber. Uh, but, but certainly it, it is a tactic that we're seeing and, and uh, you know, it is something of, of concern. So, you know, many, many families just don't think of that concept or protecting themselves against that kind of threat. But certainly when it comes to residential security and thinking about how you secure your home, uh, you know, the threat of tiger kidnapping is something that, that executives really need to be concerned about. I think you've both made some really interesting points there, which is, you know, that this is this is a topic I think people often associate with being something limited to Hollywood. But uh, as you've both shown, this is a case and a threat that's that's very, very real. So I think uh, all there is to say is thank you very much for joining us. This has been a really fascinating discussion. And uh, I'll uh, make sure that the links to the books we've discussed get put in the show notes uh, so that our, our listeners can, can grab a copy of those. So, gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us. Our producer for this episode was Edwin Tran, and our research was conducted by the entire Encyclopedia Geopolitica team. 